Well, welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. We're welcoming back our guest, Kenny Polkari. Uh, we had a great conversation with you just the other week, talking about kind of the history of the stock market, how the New York Stock Exchange, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange worked. And we left off right at the 1987 crash. Uh-huh. All the computers set, told everybody to sell. So what did everyone do? They sold. They had to dis- they had to get rid of you know up to five percent of their portfolio because the computer told them they had to. And you know we didn't get to it, but the thing that I that popped into my head because I didn't know as much about the 1987 crash and I was born in '85, so I don't have a, a great memory of it. But I go, wow, that sounds awfully similar to the 2008 crash because there was just all these systems kind of competing, telling everybody that it was okay. The mortgage broker said it was okay. The rating agencies said it was okay. Everyone said it was okay and it's okay and it's okay. And then all of a sudden the whole thing stopped working. Do you, what, I mean, Kenny, welcome back first of all. So well, thank you for having me back. But let me clarify that because, because I, I, I have to correct you because here's, a, here's why I'll correct you. In 1987, after the market from 1982 1987 the market had the market had gone from you know the dow went from 792 to 2800 had this massive move and that portfolio insurance if you listen to the the prior podcast you'll understand what that is when that kicked in and that sent the sell signal that sell signal happened in a day and so the market the market cratered by 22.5% in 6 and a half hours in 2008 during the financial crisis, that was that that was a very different situation. First of all, economically, it was a different situation. It was a different time in the market. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it was not precipitated by by a portfolio insurance or a p- computer program telling everybody to sell. In fact, the two thousand and eight financial crisis actually took. Uh, it started in late 2007 and it wasn't over until 2000, March of 2009. So it was actually a year and a half worth of selling. Right. But that was, that was really driven by uh, the collapse in a lot of those unregulated derivative products that were designed. Yes. Designed by wall street at the behest of the Clinton administration, you know, help design these products, help Americans go out and buy a house, help immigrants go out and buy a house, help people with no income verification loans go out and buy a house. Let people go into the bank and say, I want to buy that $500,000 house, but don't ask me if I have a job, just give me the money. And they gave them the money in what was known as no income, no verification loans. Now, if you don't know what those are, Google it and find out because that was the disaster that precipitated the the, the great financial crisis that began in 2007. Um, and that was a year and a half worth of selling. And it was a year and a half worth of um, Armageddon, financial Armageddon that really not only infected the US, but those products became so popular as investment products uh, that, they, that they were sold to institutions around the world, right? Both in Europe and in Asia. And so when those products started to fail uh that's when you the web was so big the web was really worldwide is is you saw it was it was like dominoes it just it started falling over itself and falling over itself and what people couldn't do in 2007 and 8 was they couldn't sell the products 
They couldn't sell all those derivative products because there was no goddamn bids. Nobody wanted to buy them. So therefore, you, there's no bid. And so what do you do when you panic and you can't sell what you should? You sell what you can. And what could you sell? You could sell stocks. Why? Because A, they're regulated. B, they trade on an exchange. All you have to do is go to your Bloomberg machine, your quote drop machine, and type in GE or BAC or IBM, and bingo, there's a price. And if you want to raise money, you could say, okay, I want to sell my 100,000 shares of IBM, or if you're a retail guy, I want to sell my 200 shares of General Electric, whatever it was. You hit the sell button, boom, you sold it. You got to check the next day. You couldn't sell the ABSs and the CDSs and the CMOs and the ABCs and the XYZs. You couldn't sell them. A, because they were unregulated. They were derivative products that were so highly leveraged that there, was, there were no bids. And so therefore, that is what precipitated and created the crash because they were all built on mortgages. And some of them were built on AAA mortgages. And some of them were built on subprime mortgages. And again, I think I said this the other day, but if I didn't, for anyone out there who has not seen it, you should both read the book and watch the movie, The Big Short, because they did the movie. I mean, the book was great. The movie, they did such a great job because they, they, they put it in layman's terms when they explained what was happening or what had happened. It's easier for, the, for someone who's ne not necessarily in this business say you're a doctor or a plumber or a restaurant worker or whatever, if you watch The Big Short, you they, they explain it in such layman's terms. I think they did a fantastic job, but it it becomes clear to everybody what the fuck really happened. And I think that I agree with you. I think that's a great movie, The Big Short. I love yeah. uh, when Steve Carell's character goes, yeah. yeah, why did he just confess? Right. And the guy goes, he's bragging about how much money he made. But right. at the same time, he was confessing basically Right. How terrible the system how, was. How terrible the system was. And but the guy uh, was just playing with the uh, you know, the incentives that the that the system had built in. And the, the, not only built in, but really the, the 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 you know what ended up being the weaknesses because look, here's always the issue, right? And the same thing happened with portfolio insurance. When they create the program or they create the products, when they back test them. They backtest them in the perfect scenario. Oh, well, you know, the economy's good. The economic numbers are good. Europe is booming. Asia's booming. China's booming. The world is beautiful. The sun is out. The tide is high and everything is good. And so they test all the systems. They go, look at that. Everything works perfectly. Oh, really? Until it doesn't. And that was clear portfolio insurance because when, when, when the portfolio insurance, um, when the portfolio insurance came out, uh, it was that the economy was starting to struggle, both in the U.S. as well as globally. And so therefore, the portfolio insurance product wasn't tested in those environments. The same way the ABSs and CMOs and CDSs, all that stuff wasn't back tested in a stressed economic environment. And so when, that, when, when it hit the fan, it really hit the fan. And I and feel so, like, and I think maybe that was more the comparison. I knew that the, Obviously, the, the yeah, the uh, 1987 collapse or crash was vastly different than the 2008. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was vastly I, different. I think that there was, but there was parallels there that people were trusting this system that wasn't properly stress-tested, essentially. Did you say that's a fair comparison? I, 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 
I think that's a fair comparison. Yes, because they, yes, I think that's always a fair comparison because the problem is they don't ever, they don't ever, they don't ever back test uh, some of these products in a, in a completely stressed environment because most of the time they fail and, you know, the guys that write them and invent them and create them, all they want to do is sell themselves real quick. Don't tell anybody that, you know, let's not, let's not test in a stressed environment. And so that's exactly what happened. And, you know, the, the great financial crisis and listen, that, that was, that crisis was so big and, you know, maybe a lot of people don't really understand, but I got to tell you something, the global financial system came to the edge came, which is why it necessitated every central bank around the world to come together to fucking put the brakes on and do unprecedented things to prevent them, to prevent the, the, the financial system from complete collapse. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm just curious, Kenny, because uh, you know, that the, the financial crisis, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed and, you know, yep. there's coverage on CNBC. And I remember there's, you know, famous Jim Cramer clip, you know, about, you know, should we be holding Lehman Brothers or not? You know, and he's yep. coming on the news every day. I, I'm just curious, what was the mood in New York like this during the whole time? And were you guys, were there panic people there? Or was it, that, you know, do we think, oh, we're just going to make it through this and recover? Or what? Were oh, no, no, no. There, there were, there were days of real panic, uh, not only in New York, but you could hear the panic in people's voices clients voices you know clients that i would speak to asset managers fund managers there were days where there were it wasn't panic for a year and a half but there were days very specific days of panic so the bear stearns day was a panic the lehman brothers the you know when 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 lehman brothers you know finally in that september when they when they ultimately said when when hank paulson and the fed said we're not saving you that was a day of panic as well. I mean, you could feel it. You could feel it in the air. You could feel it. In the and you could hear it in the voices. You could you could cut the air with a knife. It was so thick and it was so, um, yeah. It was it was panic. But the, but it wasn't panic for a year and a half. It was stressful. Listen, it was stressful because the market went down for a year and a half and it would bounce and then go boom. It would get smashed again. And so it was definitely stressful. But it wasn't panicked for a year and a half other than, you know, a handful of days when, you know, first it was Baird, then it was Lehman, then it was the whole Merrill Lynch debacle, right? When John Thane took Merrill Lynch over and said, oh, yeah, everything's fine, no worries. And then, you know, it became earnings season. And when they looked at what happened, holy shit, what am I going to do now? I can't. I just told everybody we're fine. Meanwhile, Merrill Lynch, which was the largest retail broker in the country, was about to fucking go under. That was a problem. That was another stressful day, right? But that was a day that, and, and so John Thane and Hank Paulson and everybody worked behind the scenes to get um, Bank America to stand up, you know, certainly with government assistance and, and all that stuff to stand up and take fucking Merrill Lynch out too. And I forget at the price that they took Merrill Lynch out because, you know, Merrill Lynch was a publicly traded company. I, I forget, I'd have to go back and Google it, but it was a disaster. That was another day of real fucking panic and stress. Um, you could, you could, you could just, it was heavy. You could just feel it in, uh, in, in the way when you spoke to people, the way that, you know, the, the way that, the way that people, um, the tone of their voice, you could just feel it. You know what I mean? So, so one follow-up, you know, 
when those went out of business, right, the kind of the government could have jumped in and saved them. And they, the government did jump in and save, you know, certain companies. And then now we have a, you know, coronavirus crisis and we have airlines that are going under, cruise lines going under. And the government said, OK, you know, maybe we'll give you these loans or we'll buy up your corporate debt. I don't know. I guess to me, is it, is it fair that we bail out certain people or not bail out certain people? Or do we how do we I don't know, does the market is, is it predictable in a sense after well, that? Well, listen, in, in the case of the great financial crisis, I don't really think anyone had, I don't really think anyone had an option. I don't think any government or any central bank had an option because we were talking about the global financial markets, markets that really make the world run from day to day. So I, I don't think there was even a question. Now, listen, they, 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 it wasn't without its pain. Look, Bear Stearns, which was $120 stock, ended up selling out what the original, if you remember, you guys may not remember this, when it, when, I mean, it was getting crushed, 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 crushed. And when J.P. Morgan made the original deal for, for Bear Stearns, they were going to pay $2 a share, $2 a share. Um, and, 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 uh, and, you know, Bear Stearns and, and the shareholder service said, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. I mean, listen, it's humiliating enough and we're getting fucking beat up enough. And they ended up, I think I think the deal ended up being $12 a share. Um, Merrill Lynch was the same thing. You know, it wasn't nearly that bad, but Merrill Lynch got, got hosed as well. And look, there were people that were, you know, Bear Stearns alumni that had worked their whole life and they were getting rewarded in Bear Stearns stock and Bear Stearns stock would go up every year. These people were counting their wealth on paper because they never diversified. Listen, I, I love, you know, you work, you work in a place like Bear Stearns. Enron's another example. You guys won't remember Enron either. Um, but Enron was another example. You know, that was nothing but a house of cards. But people that worked there, you know, got all kinds of compensation in stock. And the stock kept going up. And, you know, they'd look at their, 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 their pension plan and their 401ks. And they'd go, you know, on paper, they were worth $3 bucks Until they weren't. When the, when the place imploded, all of a sudden the three million turned to zero and these people got wiped out. The same thing happened at J uh, Bear Stearns. The same thing happened at Lehman Brothers. Um, you know, it's funny. It's so funny because I just had this conversation today with, um, with, with a guy that I knew that was a Bear Stearns broker on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange that, you know, he was a young guy at the time. You know, now he's, I think now he's 52. But when that happened, you know, that was... Uh, when Bear Stearns happened, that was what, 12 years ago. So he might've been late thirties, early forties, you know, on paper, he said it to me on paper, I was worth a million and a half dollars. I was 40 years old, worth a million and a half dollars. I had my whole life ahead of me, blah, blah, blah. I had all this stock in Bear Stearns. He said, and because his, because his stock wasn't um, uh, vested yet, he couldn't sell it because it wasn't vested yet, but it was his in the account. But because he couldn't sell it because he wasn't vested, by the time it was over, the million and a half was worth thirty nine hundred dollars, and that's wow. what and that's what he said to me. And he said, "Kenny, you know, I I, I had a re I've had a really tough decade coming back from that, right? Is what you know because shit like that happens. All of a sudden, your wife walks out the door because you're no good anymore. You you know you can't do this. They lose the house. They lose the car. The wife walks out. You, you know he was devastated." And, uh, and he's turned his life around completely outside of the business now, not in financial services at all. Um, and, uh, but he said to me, you know, we, we, it's so funny we're having this conversation today because I literally had this conversation with him at about 1230 today, just because he's now down here in Florida and he, he runs and operates a couple of restaurants. He's very happy. Um, 
but he said to me, you know, I had a really, really tough time, a whole decade's worth, you know what I mean? And uh, so, so, you know, I, I would say that now when you talk about the COVID crisis, do I think we need to save airlines? I think airlines are such an integral part of the economy, whether it's transportation, whether it's business, whether it's leisure travel, whatever. I think it's such an integral part of the economy that I'd say, you know, you have to give them help. But look, the same way the government gave General Motors help, we saved General Motors, but the government owned the stock in General Motors. So when General Motors came back, guess who made the money? The government made the money back because the stock went up, they sold their stock, boom. So the government got paid back. Right. We helped them out. We own the government owned the stock when the when, when it improved and the stock went up in value. The government cashed out. So the government did not lose money on General Motors. Yeah, I guess the question is, is that capitalism, though, or is that like, you know, is that state, you know, controlled well, economy right there? Well, OK, listen, we you could argue that that's a state controlled economy, but you also have to you also have to put yourself in the shoes of what was happening in the markets at the time, right? And so you could argue, yeah, let them blow up, but you let them blow up, you let the fucking country blow up at that point. I mean, you have to make, look, and it's like today, and I'm not, you know, like I for one don't think we should be saving the cruise industry. I would never go on a fucking cruise to save my life. So why are we saving the cruise industry? But, you know, where do you draw the line? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's people who work there. You're right. People right, exactly have retirements right. and exactly. livelihoods. You know, Royal Caribbean and 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 uh, and and Costa, whatever there. Uh, uh, you know, all those big cruise companies. I get you. I just don't like cruises. I don't like the idea of being stuck on a boat. I don't like the idea of being. I just don't like it. So therefore, I would never go on a cruise. But I take a plane to go to Europe. I take a plane to go to South America. I take a plane to go to Asia because I want to go see those places. So you know, I'm I'm happy to get on a plane, but. Yeah, cruise, I guess to, to, me, to me, there's a difference between, you know, if you're a bank and you made bad business decisions, I feel like you should get punished, right? Yes. Maybe if you're a cruise, I don't know if you necessarily made bad business decisions. Maybe you did stock buybacks or weren't the best with your capital. But like, I, capitalism, I think, should reward people that are doing good, making good decisions. Agreed. But I think I think we can all argue that COVID was not caused by you or me, yeah. right? We didn't bring this on ourselves. These companies didn't get destroyed. These businesses, small family business, didn't get destroyed because they wanted to get destroyed, right? And so I, I think there's, a, there's certainly a moral argument we can make about what you should do and what you shouldn't do and where do you draw the line. But it's like anything, where do you draw the line? Oh, yeah. you take it right to here. And then the guy on the other side of the line says, hey, what about me? So where do you draw the line? I, I, I'm not saying it's simple at all. But, you know, when you talk about the great financial crisis, what people have to understand is that we were really talking about a complete meltdown of the global financial system. And so, so the world, the country, central banks around the world had really had no choice but to uh, save the system. They didn't. You know, we can argue that all day long. I will say, I will say what we should have done better in retrospect when we saved all those banks, uh, you know, Goldman and Mayor, Bank of America, all that stuff. I don't think that they, I don't think that they were hard enough on uh, controlling salaries at, at those banks after we saved them. I think they allowed, they, 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 there was some control, but I don't think I think they could have controlled it more. But you see, then the problem is this. Then you look around at places like New York and the tri-state area. The New York and the tri-state economy, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, was all built around the financial services industry. I mean, housing prices and fucking 
other ancillary jobs that were created because of the financial services industry. All of a sudden, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden these guys go from making whatever they were making, $2 million a year to 500,000, which is still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but 500,000 doesn't support a lifestyle when you were used to making two or $3 million a year. So you lose your house. Then you lose the, the then the landscaper loses his job and the painter loses his job and the fucking window guy and the construction guys. It's a, it's a, it's a multiplying effect. Right. Um, but I, but I think, and again, it wasn't any of those guys' fault that the construction guy or the cement guy or the wall guy or the landscape, they didn't do anything fucking wrong. But why are they then the ones that are going to also get hurt, right? So it's a, listen, it's a, it's, a, it's a completely fascinating moral conversation we could have because it is the moral dilemma, right? Um, I do. I want to stop just for a second because I want to touch on that. But I wanted to jump back because we talked about the airlines and the cruise industry just briefly there and how the government did bail them out or save them. And just to play kind of devil's advocate on that, you know, the you know, the federal government's been supporting Amtrak for a long time. And they really justified that after 9-11 saying we need to be able to move our citizens, our residents around in the time of crisis. And I think that we could actually apply that same argument to the cruise lines and the, uh, to the airlines, because in the event of a national emergency, you need to be able to move people about around the country by whatever means necessary. And I think the airlines facilitate that. They have the infrastructure to do it. And even the cruise lines have the infrastructure to move massive amounts of people in an emergency situation. I would agree with you. So that's, I would agree. That's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a simple conversation to have. Like, where do you draw the line? Yeah, I, I, right. I guess, yeah, Michael Johnson, you're a national defense kind of guy, you know, mil ex-military Marine here talking. So I, I get that. Uh, there's a national interest to keep those, those right. industries alive. There's a national interest. I mean, listen, it's not, it's, it, it, it's not pretty. And it's, actually, it's kind of ugly right now. But, um, you know, if it, were, if it were designed properly, if the government's going to help them out, then the government should, there should be some ownership the way it was in General Motors. And General Motors paid off handsomely for the government. Um, but there should be there should be an interest in okay you want our help great now we own a piece of the airlines and now we own a piece of the cruise lines and when when the world wakes up again and all these businesses take off and the stock prices rise guess who gets the benefit and guess who really benefits are the taxpayers cuz it's you and me and you that are supporting all this shit right and so ultimately we as the taxpayers should be able to benefit and that benefit should come back actually to the government because the government's one lending them the money, but the benefit should come back to the government and then it should come back to us as individuals. But Yeah, and no, I agree. I like that because I, I do think, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know this, but yeah, the 2008 financial crisis, we bailed out the, you know, the federal government bailed out the auto industry but they, they made money on the loans. They ended up profiting off of it. So it seemed like that was almost a win-win situation. The auto industry got to stay. We got to still produce cars domestically. Detroit got to keep their jobs. And the federal government, actually, the taxpayers, we actually made money off of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Well, the, the government made money off the deal. So ultimately, the taxpayers made money yeah. off the deal. I'm going to call it the taxpayers. It's, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Brian, did you have another question there? Well, I mean, I, I'm happy to go down this chain. I have another un, maybe kind of related to this topic, but um, I just noticed that, you know, we talked about the 2008 crash, and, you know, we talked a little about COVID, but I always heard, you know, in 2010, there was a flash crash. I don't know. Oh, if yeah, 2011. Right. It was May of 2011. Or yeah, okay, 2011. 20, May of 2011 it was, wasn't it? Yeah, like the flash crash, of, well, maybe it was 2010. 
whatever. It doesn't yeah, make a difference. that time but range fact, it was a while yeah, ago. Yeah. But uh, listen, I was there. I was there that day too. I could tell you exactly what it felt like and what happened. And and once again, it was technology out of, spun out of control. But it was technology that spun out of control because the person driving the technology didn't have a fucking clue what they were doing. And you know when you you know when you're on technology and you make it to maybe you don't you don't. But you know when you get like the extra message that pops up on the screen it says are you sure you want to do this yes. right like you put a you put a command in i don't know you you want to you want to transfer a thousand dollars from your bank account to your savings account and when you go to hit you know transfer the message pops up says are you sure right make sure you got the makes it just causes you to stop and look okay do i have the right account am i transferring the right amount of money whatever it's 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 a system of checks and balances right and you know most people just go yeah 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 they just click right through it Okay, that's exactly what this idiot did for the flash crash that happened in May of 2010. Say that to us. But here's what happened. May of 2010. Yeah, you had it right. So, he, so here's what happened. The market was under pressure in the first place. I think, you know, we first of all, we were still kind of, we were just coming out of the great financial crisis. Markets continued to be volatile, uh, really through, probably through, uh, probably through 2011, you know, we had bouts of volatility in the market because there had been there had been so much damage done to the market during the crash uh, that the market was still finding its way on the way out. And so this was May of 2010. I was on the floor of the exchange. The market was, you know, under pressure already. I think the market was down maybe 100 points. You know, which 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 in 2010 was still a fairly decent move for the Dow, right? Down 100 points was, was it was volatile, right? Yeah. And then suddenly, here's what happened. So let me, let me just paint the picture and then I'll tell you. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a wealth manager out in Kansas City called Waddell and Reed. You can look them up. They still exist. They're a big money manager. And so they have rebalancings. They, sometimes they're quarterly, sometimes they're monthly. You may have rebalanced a f- very large account on a daily, you know, on this one day, you had this rebalancing that happened for this one account. And the rebalancing was a fairly big rebalancing. And so what happens is you rebalancing means, you know, there might be, there might be 500 names. And actually it was an S&P rebalancing for this, for this client. So there in fact were 500 names in this portfolio. And so what you were supposed to do is you're supposed to buy some names and sell some names to quote unquote rebalance the portfolio, right? Stocks that had really outperformed, you had to take some money off the table. No stocks and then reallocate that to stocks that had underperformed. That's what a rebalancing, a reweighting is, right? So what should have happened is 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 the the young man that was was entering this order. Now the order was, you have to understand something. The order wasn't just a single order for one stock. There were 500 names in this order, right? Think of the S&P 500. Think of every one of those 500 names in the S&P. So when I say to you, it was an order, it wasn't, you know, go out and buy a hundred thousand shares of telephone. Oh no, 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 no. It was 500 names. Some were buy, some were sells. And what should have happened is that it should have been entered into the system, right? The technology, it was all going to happen seamlessly. Oh, just stick this order in there and let the computer do it. Well, that's fine because that's what exactly what should have happened. But, but there should have been uh, parameters on the order. 
So the order should have been, it was entered at like, I think it started at about 1.30 or quarter or two in the afternoon. But the order of this rebalancing should have happened over the last hour and a half or two and a half hours of the trading day. So it should have started at quarter or two and it should have spread it out until four o'clock in the afternoon, which was perfectly legitimate to do. Um, and so therefore, it, what it would have done is it would have, it would have sent order flow into the market, you know, over a period of 120 minutes, right? Two and a half hours, whatever the number was. And so therefore, a 30,000 share order to sell uh, an IBM, even though it was a market order to sell 30,000 shares of IBM, that 30,000 shares would have been spread out over two and a half hours. So in retrospect, maybe, maybe every three or four minutes, it'd sell 500 shares. And then three, four minutes later, it would sell 500 shares because it had to take the 30,000 and spread it out over 180 minutes. Do you understand what I mean? Okay. Yeah. And the same thing in same thing in American Telephone, the same thing in Bank of America, and the same thing in Johnson & Johnson, the same thing in Procter & Gamble, whatever the, the size was. Now, they weren't all 30,000 share orders. Some of them were 10,000 shares and some of them were 100,000 shares. Depends on the stock. Depends on the market capitalization, right? Depends on the weighting. But what happens is the kid takes the fucking order, sticks it in the system, and hits the go button. Now, what he didn't do was set the parameters, which was the timing. He just hits it, and this big message pops up on the screen. It says, are you sure you want to do this? Click, click, click. He just clicked right through it. Just took your little mouse, click, 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 right? Not paying any attention to the warning sign. And so when he hit the, the last one, he sent this order into the market for immediate execution. Immediate, exactly what should not have happened. Because you can't take 100,000 shares of IBM, which is $150 stock, $150, uh, trades at $150 a share. You can't take 100,000 shares of $150 stock and just say, oh, sell it at the market. You fucking destroy the system, which is exactly what he did. Because here's the other problem that happened up until this event. Now it's all changed. Prior to this event happening, as after, after, um, uh, after the events in 9-11, and after we redesigned the whole U.S. capital markets to accommodate technology and advances in technology, we had the New York Stock Exchange, which was a human-based system. And then you had these other nine venues, which were all automated. They were like NASDAQ. They were computer-based systems, right? But there was, there was a rule set written by the New York Stock Exchange, written by that a rule set that operated in a human-based environment. Well, when the tech guys, when 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 this all started happening, and the and these technology exchanges uh, 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 were born, and then you know alternative venues and supercomputers talking with supercomputers, the tech guys didn't want to operate by the human-based rule set because they say. That's the whole point. We're not human-based, so therefore we should not have to abide by the human-based rules. So we don't want to trade, but we don't want we want to trade with just our technology rules, which means we just want to let the stocks trade, buy them, sell them, let the computers just buy them, sell them. Don't let the humans get in the way. And we, we mean the New York Stock Exchange, went down to the SEC and we argued and we argued and we argued that you cannot have the U.S. capital markets operating on two different rule sets because we all played in the same sandbox. And so therefore the rule set should be the same. 
But the tech guys hired lobbyists that fought and fought and fought. No, no, no. We want our own rule set. You guys can do whatever you want. Human-based market. We don't want to operate like that. And so the SEC, in their infinite wisdom, made the decision that there should be a two-tiered set of rules. The tech guys and the computers should play under one rule set, and the humans should play in another rule set. Okay, so here's the, here's the, the, the problem. The humans are at the New York Stock Exchange, which is the major market center. So companies like Coke and, and IBM and, and, and American Telephone and General Electric, their, their market center is the New York Stock Exchange. That's their listed major market. And so therefore, trading falls under the rules of that market center. Human-based, so the, so the rules get, the, the rules for how those stocks trade should trade as a human-based market, correct? But since the tech guys convinced the SEC that they didn't want to play by the human-based rules and the SEC said, fine, okay, you guys play in your, in your electronic venues the way you want to play, the New York Stock Exchange will play under their rules. Here's the problem. The New York Stock Exchange had a rule set that said, if a stock moves X percent, now depending on the stock and the price and the market capitalization, everyone was different. If a stock moves X percent within this amount of time, the, human, the humans get to say full stop. Why? Because potentially if that happens, there's a problem. And so the humans tried to say, okay, we're going to say full stop and you'd stop trading in the stock. The tech guy said, that's great. You can stop trading in the stock. We don't want to stop trading in the stock. So, you, so in all these, other all these other electronic venues, they wanted to still be able to trade. Here's the fucking problem though. None of them had a set of balls. All they did was they traded off of where the New York Stock Exchange, the major market center, was setting the price. So if Coke was on the New York Stock Exchange, if Coke was $20 bid, offered at three cents, that's the bid, that's the offer. If you're in an alternative venue and you're bidding 19 and you're offering at 21, you're not going to trade with anybody because why would anybody sell you stock at 19 when they can sell it at 20 in New York? Or why would they pay you 21 when they can buy it at $20.03 in New York? Do you understand? Yep. So therefore, all the, all the electronic venues would then jump on the back of the New York Stock Exchange because that was the best bid, best offer. Are you following me? So the electronic venues, if New York was 20 bid off at a three cents, the electronic venues might be 20 and a penny bid off at it, 20 and two cents. They'd be within either they'd better the market or they'd be exactly at the market. Because if you were outside of the market, you couldn't play. Gabish. Yes. So, so guess what happens when this order flow, when, 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 when these orders that were entered by Waddell hit the system, the sell orders overwhelmed the system because you got orders that popped up in the specials book at the New York Stock Exchange, sell 100,000 IBM at the market. Again, you would never do that. Sell 50,000 shares of Coke at the market. Sell up 300,000 shares of Johnson & Johnson at the market. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the name of the um, um, consulting company that was a $40 number at quarter two. It traded down to a penny on NASDAQ before they stopped the market. But here's what happened. When those orders came through the system, the first trade was down, right? So IBM, all of a sudden, they say, okay, here's 100,000 coming in for sale through the market. We're going to trade 9,000 shares down to whatever the, the limit was. And then, all, and then they get to say full stop. So they shut the door. 
So now guess guess who couldn't read what the market was anymore? All those fucking electronic venues that wanted to have their own set of rules that were piggybacking on the New York Stock Exchange. The minute the human-based market said full stop because that was our rule set, they shut the door. Now you can't see what my bid is or my offer is. So what do you do in the electronic venue? You immediately cancel all your bids because you don't know where the real bid is now because you can't see it, right? Because we closed the door. Are you following me? So what happened in all those electronic markets is that the bids fucking disappeared. Now there were no bids. Yet, yet the sell side that got rerouted because the minute the New York Stock Exchange closed the doors, they were able to reroute the order flow to the electronic venues. If you noticed, it was all the electronic venues that traded down. The New York Stock Exchange never traded. The, the, the IBM traded, you know, IBM traded down 50 cents and stopped. But in the electronic venues, IBM kept trading lower because the sell orders that got rerouted to the electronic venues started hitting bids any bid it could find, which is why you saw the market. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there and it's quarter two and the market's down 110. And then all of a sudden, it's it's 147 and the market's down 212. And then it's 152 and the market's down 270. And you're saying... I remember standing there in the floor. I'm saying, "What the fuck is going on?" Because you'd almost think that there was a massive tragedy, like the president got shot, or or there was some terrorist, right? Exactly what you thought, because the market was reacting in such a way that the bottom was falling out, and everyone's looking at each other. And you're calling up clients, you're going, "What the fuck is going on? What's happening? Who got killed?" Nobody knew what was happening. All you could see that prices were fucking collapsing. And I'm, uh, it's a it's a consulting company that begins with A. What's a consulting company that begins like with Accenture? A? Accenture. Accenture was a forty dollars stock on New York. When the order came through to sell Accenture, Accenture traded down to thirty six, and then it was full stop. In the next seven and a half minutes, it traded down to a penny in Nasdaq. Nasdaq actually traded stock at a penny. Now think about you being the CEO of Accenture. And at quarter two, you're looking at your stock, it's trading at $40, which is about where it traded. And, it, and, and at, two, at, at, at two o'clock, it's trading at a penny. What the fuck is going on? And that happened in IBM, and it happened in Johnson & Johnson, and it happened in Abbott Laboratories, and it happened in Procter & Gamble. Do you understand what I mean? It's because the tech guys didn't think that they should play by our rules. As a result of that event, guess what the rule set says now? Everyone plays even, by the same set. The rule set says the major market. So in this case, it's the New York Stock Exchange. Even though the New York Stock Exchange is a human-based market, the New York Stock Exchange is the major market. So if your stock is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, then you have to play by the New York Stock Exchange rules. So today, as a result of that event, if an order comes through the system that causes the specialist to go full stop, it has to stop trading everywhere. At no other venue can trade the stock. And that's for obvious reasons, because look what happened in May of 2011. But can, can you can you bought it a penny then at the time if you were quick enough to see it happen? You did, and you bought it at ten cents, and you bought it at a dollar. Absolutely. But guess what happened the next day when 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 all of a sudden everyone was screaming, all those trades got broken. So think about this for a minute, because now think about the other side of that trade. There you bought you bought Accenture on the way down. You right, you bought it at twenty, you bought it at fifteen, you bought it at ten, you bought it at a penny. And then when the market reopened again, and the and the fucking thing ran right back up to forty, which is where it should have been trading in the first place. All the stock you bought it at, at those lower prices, you flipped out at forty. You're going home that night singing, fucking whistling all the money you made. Guess what? The next day, 
You didn't make any of that money because none of those trades on the way down existed. None of those trades existed. So you didn't, all that stock you sold, you didn't really sell because you never owned it in the first place, which is honestly, which is true. That should be the way it is because, th because those trades should never have happened, but it created such fucking pandemonium and chaos that suddenly the SEC and everyone else down in, in the government woke up and said, well, that was kind of a stupid decision that we have two different rule sets in the same sandbox. It would be one thing if they were completely disconnected. You can play any way you want if, if you are completely disconnected. But this wasn't completely disconnected, right? And so therefore, as a result of that event, <laughs> everyone scrambled, okay, how do we fix it? Well, we fix it by having a single fucking rule set that everybody has to play by. And the, and the rule set that ultimately won was the rule set that we argued for ad nauseum down at the SEC. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. You need to have one rule set. And so today we have one rule set. So now today, if somebody enters an order like that, or erroneously enters a single order to sell a million shares of IBM at the market, it's going to trade down. The first trade will trade down and then it goes full stop. And now, and so, and then what you can do is that the specialists can actually see now the, the market maker can, there's a, you know, there's a, all kinds of code. So you can see exactly where this order came from. It came through Goldman Sachs. Here's the, here's the turnaround number. You call Goldman Sachs, you say, whoever this fucking order is belongs to somebody's making a big mistake. And so you can now prevent that from happening. But prior we, to that event, prior to that us. event, you couldn't yeah. do it. I was going to say, we see that a lot in the stream where, you know, we're training some of the more volatile right. stocks and they get halted. There'll be a five right. minute halt, they, a 10 minute halt. Right. And right. the circuit breakers trigger when circuit there's a breakers. big buy, big sell. Exactly. exactly right. And that's, and listen, it's designed for a reason. It's really designed to protect the system, but it's also designed to protect you because if you made the fucking mistake, it could be a very expensive mistake. And yeah. so it, it, it's designed also to protect the participants, right? No, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I did, and I think it's interesting. Yeah, they came back the next day and actually canceled the orders, you know. They had to, they had they to had cancel to, all the orders. You know. They had to. There was, there was even a question about should they not cancel? They had to cancel. And listen, they had, you know how many orders they had to cancel? Think about oh, all the stuff. I could even only imagine. <laughs> oh, it was, a it, was a, it was a disaster. But, but, it was, um, uh, but it was a direct result of, uh, of stu quite honestly, in my opinion, complete stupidity for allowing two different rule sets to exist in the same market. Complete stupidity. Yeah. But that doesn't, you know, again, it had to take a tragedy like that to, to wake somebody up to go, oh, wow, I guess that was a bad decision, right? Well, I, you know, I used to work in construction and I always kind of reviewing different OSHA rules and everything. And yeah. I always reminded the guys that every single stupid OSHA rule out there yeah. existed because somebody did something really stupid and caused them to make that rule. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. And, 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 you know, what they did, uh, what they did, um, what they did uh, in, in, in it, when the technology, you know, when technology was really, was really starting to take over the industry, you know, tech had big lobbyists. They paid lobbyists big money and they got their way against our better judgment. You know, here were guys that were not, they were tech guys. They weren't traders. They weren't economists. They weren't finance majors. They were fucking, they, they were tech programmers. And we kept saying, no, you don't understand. No, you don't understand. No, we were all a bunch of idiots. We were all a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Who had the last laugh, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you say that, 
you say who had the last laugh, but it didn't have to happen is the point. Yeah. Right. So. No, that makes sense. That does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's, it's very, it's, it's fascinating how a lot of those rules did come about. Um, and listen, and the same thing that happened in circuit breakers after the crash in 1987, the circuit breakers had, the circuit breakers were born out of the event in 1987. Again, because it spun out of control, partly because the technology kept saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. And the human beings who paid a lot of money to have that technology available to them said, okay, well, if it's telling me to do it, that means I have to do it. It, it must be smarter than I am, so I have to do it, which, was, which is the complete fucking failure, right? <laughs> and so, and so those, those, those circuit breaker rules were born out of those events. Um, I did want to shift gears a little bit here. We're getting uh, towards the end of the episode, but there's the dot-com bubble. We all remember the dot-com bubble right there yep. at the turn of the century. Yeah. Um, you know, it was one of the, 1999 actually set the record for the most IP, most money raised in IPOs. $108 billion was raised in IPOs in 1999. Mm-hmm. Currently we're in what people are calling a unicorn bubble. Yeah. And 2020 actually broke the record. 200 over 200 billion dollars raised between IPOs and SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. Yeah. What what type of parallels and what type of differences are you seeing right now between where we are currently in the market here at the beginning of 2021 and where the market was at the height of the dot com bubble? So what I'll say is two things. In the dot com bubble, the internet was just born, right? It was brand new. Uh, and none of those stocks that had .com at the end of the name had a shred of earnings, never mind a business plan. It was, it was a time, it was, it was such a fascinating time because this thing called the internet was suddenly changing the world, and someone came up with this idea, if you put a .com after your name, you got to be worth something. It's got to be something fantastic. And so you had pets.com and toys.com and it was, it was stupid, right? It was, it was dumb. It was just dumb, but they, but, but they would bring these companies public and, and, and the retail public was just, they, they were in a frenzy, partly because the other thing that was happening was the technology advances technology were now giving everybody and their brother access to their trading account at Fidelity or, 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 or TD Ameritrade or, or, or E-Trade or whatever it was, and you could make your own buy and sell decisions. And you could go out and buy, you know, 100 shares of American Telephone and enter an order and go, wow, look what I just did. Okay, great. That's fine. But the dot-com craze made people stupid. They were stupid. And, 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 and until it came, I mean, listen, it didn't come crashing down for a while, Right. And and every day there was a new and it all traded on NASDAQ. None of these stocks traded on New York Stock Exchange. Let's just make that clear. Because because they didn't have they didn't have earnings, they didn't have a business plan, they didn't qualify to list on the New York Stock Exchange, but they went to NASDAQ because NASDAQ says, Yeah, come in, we'll trade you. We'll we'll list you. Great. Yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capitalism at its best. It was a it was a disaster. And so um the difference, you know, pair that off against today. Today is different because actually these unicorns, although I still think I, I still think there's, it does feel frothy, but the fact is these companies today actually have a business plan. They are making money. They are disrupting the world. Airbnb, like it or not, has disrupted the hotel industry. Pets.com didn't disrupt anything. Toys.com did not disrupt Toys R Us. 
or Kmart. But Airbnb disrupts the hotel industry. DoorDash, Uber disrupts the, ta the, the taxi industry, the limousine industry, right? I mean, all these companies out there, Shopify, right? is fantastic for the gig economy. I mean, people that people that you people that now exist, companies that now exist couldn't exist without these unicorns. And so the difference today versus then is that these businesses today that you know you might call it a unicorn bubble, and I may agree with you that I think it's a little bit frothy, um, but they are actually companies that are real, that have earnings, that have business plans, that are actually disrupting industries uh, across the world. And so therefore that's different than it was in, during the dot-com bubble. There was no disruption of anything. And it was all on the hype of this thing called the internet that would ultimately change the world because it has changed the world. But in 99, in 99, 2000, it was, no one really understood. No one really understood what the internet was capable of and what we as human beings were capable of doing with the internet. Um, and so it was, it was just dumb. It was just complete stupidity. You no, know, I think and listen, and I would laugh because I never traded them because I traded on the New York stock exchange. I didn't trade on NASDAQ because I was a member of the New York stock exchange. I couldn't have a trading account. So therefore I couldn't, I never played because I couldn't, but I would laugh because Morgan Stanley would say, okay, toys.com or pets.com. They'd, they'd do the whole road show. They'd do everything. They'd take it around to all the institutions and they'd say, this, this company is worth $12 a share. That's what our analysis says. It's worth $12. They'd do the IPO at $12 and then they'd, they'd create such hype with it in the, in, in the media and the marketplace is the thing would open at 150 it would trade up to 200. It would trade back to 80 and close at 190, all in the same day. I mean, it was, it was, and, and you'd sit there and you'd say to Morgan Stanley, you just told us the stock was worth $12. It opens at 150. The fuck is going on? Right. But it was that kind of stupidity. And it, and it happened day after day after day until the world came crashing down. Right. Until all of a sudden, um, Everyone realized it was just nothing but a house of cards and it all came crashing down. And the NASDAQ, you know, lost 70% of its value. I think at the height of the dot-com bubble, the NASDAQ traded at 5,100. By the time it was over, the NASDAQ was trading at 1,700. Hmm. It was, and it took about, uh, it took about a year and a half, if I remember correctly. But it was but a I disaster. And I think we see this sometimes with uh, some of the crazes. I guess maybe they're just not as widespread. You know, 20, I think it was 2017, we had, you know, Bitcoin made its first run up to 20,000. And a bunch of companies just put blockchain in front of their, you know, just, yep. just blockchain in there. Yep. They didn't actually get involved in Bitcoin. They didn't get involved in blockchain or cryptocurrency. They just yep. threw them in there. It just, and it seems like maybe, I guess, the dot-com bubble was just so widespread. It was just on a massive scale where we continue to see these, but they're, I guess on a smaller scale, same thing, even with, I guess, 2018, we had, you know, the weed craze where everyone just said, Oh, we're looking at CBD now. Yeah. Their stock spiked. Right. Yeah, exactly. But not, yeah. yeah, but not everybody out there was jumping into it. I don't think it had quite as much money as the, the dot-com boom. No, the dot-com was, the dot-com was just out of control. It was completely out of control. The dot-com bubble. 
It was out of control. And listen, you, you could argue, like, look what happened to Airbnb and DoorDash. You could argue that that's out of control too, because you know Goldman Sachs brings Airbnb public and says it's worth sixty-eight dollars a share, and and when it opens twelve hours later, it opens at one hundred eighty. Okay, somebody's not doing their homework, and you could say, oh, it was nicely priced because look at the pop it had. No, because if I were the guy that sold my stock on Wednesday night at six o'clock to you at sixty-eight dollars a share, and twelve hours later it's trading at one hundred eighty. Even though I own more stock, and so I still own more stock, I'm not very happy that you told me it's worth 68, but you had no control or you had no sense of what the real demand was out there in the market, right? Uh, the same thing happened in Airbnb. The same thing happened in DoorDash. The same thing happened in a bunch of these stocks that, you know, and so therefore I would argue that, um, you know, like those two, those two stocks alone, because they're the most recent, I would argue that the investment banker fell down big because it's the job of the investment banker to really understand what the demand is. And it's okay if you leave five or 10% on the table. So if, if you tell the guy it's worth 68 and tomorrow it trades at 72, I, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But you tell me at six o'clock on Wednesday night, it's worth 68 and Thursday morning, less than 12 hours later, it's trading 180. I don't think I'm so okay with that, right? And, and it happened in DoorDash on Wednesday. And it happened at Airbnb on Thursday. Yep. And guess who's behind them both? Goldman and Morgan Stanley. Yep. <laughs> oh. Um, well, that's great. I really appreciate you going into that, just talking about that a little bit. There is definitely differences. I think there's some there's some parallels, but I think there's definitely vast differences. Um, you know, even people that are not getting on Tesla, given, yes, Tesla is super high priced right now, but right. they actually are a profitable company and they're disrupting an industry. Right. Correct. So, and, and, and listen, and, but you know, that's exactly right. It's disrupting an industry. It's also creating a new industry. And so, and so do I think Tesla's a bit overdone? I do. Um, but Tesla, again, Tesla's a real business. There's a real technology there. Um, and so, and so I'm okay with Tesla. Because when Tesla came public, it didn't have that didn't have that immediate jump. What it's done since it's become public, okay, but that's that you can't control that, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, um, I think that uh, Tesla is Tesla is uh, a disruptive company, absolutely. Great. Well, I know we're we're coming up on an hour or so here, um, and. You know, we can certainly, we'd love to have you back on, Kenny, but I do want to leave a little bit of time here for our last segment. We like to have a little fun and spring you with, with the question of the day. Uh, Brian comes up with it. It's a mystery to me as well. And we're just going to, like I said, have a little fun here at the end. So um, I feel like this is it, good, is it, is it personal? No, yeah, I don't no, know. It, we don't know. All right. So, go ahead, Brian. Well, I, I feel like this is in the chain of questions that we had today, but, um, and maybe this would warrant a, lo a longer discussion. But one thing I was thinking about recently is, um, you know, we have various analysts that like to give their stock, you know, price targets, right? And you'll see people, I think, you know, there's Tesla has widely varying price targets. Yeah. I guess to you, I mean, to Michael, what is your weight or what do you think of analyst opinions and price targets? Do you think this is like, you know, are we, are we looking at, are, are we, you know, doing astrology here? Or do you think it has some weight or no weight? What's the opinion on that spectrum of? Well, it's so funny because I was writing in my note tomorrow because, you know, it's now early 2021. So you have all these analysts giving their predictions for 2021. You know, so Byron Wien of Blackstone says the market's going to collapse 20 percent and then it's going to rally 50 percent by the end of the year. 
So, so if that's the case, the S&P is going to go from 37.76 where it is now to 28.90 at some point in the year before it goes back to 4,500 by December of 2021. Now, okay, if that's the case, sell everything today, wait for the 28.90 to come because Byron said it's going to happen, go all in at 28.90, and then you're up, you're up 50% on the year, right? I think it's ridiculous. But I also think that Analysts are paid to be able to analyze data and make predictions because that's kind of what the business does. Now, whether or not you believe the predictions, you don't believe the predictions, right? I think that I, 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 when I buy a stock, I'm not buying a stock because somebody says, um, I think, I think the stock is going up 15% this quarter or by the end of the year. I buy the stock because I fundamentally like the story. I believe in the story and I look on the chart and I look, I tend to be more technical than fundamental. So I also like to look at the chart. What's the chart telling me? Is the chart, does the chart agree with the fundamentals? Is the stock breaking down while this analyst is going, no, it's a buy, it's a buy, it's a buy. And the stock is breaking down on, 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 on the chart because he may have a banking relationship with that company. So he's not going to go out there and say, you know, sell it because he's got a banking relationship. He's going to say, oh no, it's a buy. This is a strong buy. This stock is going up. And so you have to take everything with a grain of salt. But I do understand that, you know, analysts are charged with being able to analyze data and come up with uh, come up with um, uh, a rationale for why a stock, why the earnings are going to grow at a certain rate. And if they grow at that certain rate, what does that mean? The stock trades at, you know, 10 times earnings. And if the earnings are going to go from 20 to 40, then the stock should go from the stock should go from $200 to $40 if they traded 10 times earnings, right? I mean, that's a legitimate argument, but whether or not you really believe that or you think that's true, or you put a lot of uh, uh, credibility in it is, is up to each individual investor. I don't, I, I don't, Right. I'll listen to what the analyst has to say and I'll listen to his rationale in the story. But I'm still going to make sure, A, I like the stock. I like the fundamental of the company and I like how it looks on the chart. Right. So, you know, when people say when people ask, you know, what's your prediction for the S&P year end 2021? OK, OK. You might as well just take the you might as well just take the fucking dart and throw it at the bulletin board, because who knew what was going to happen in January of 2020, that the market was going to crash 30% and then rally fucking 45% at the end. Who knew that? Could anyone have said that? Not at all, right? And so and so I laugh. Goldman Sachs says today that the Fed is going to keep rates at zero through 2025. Really? That's four years. You're telling me that you're you think you're so good as an analyst that you're telling me that the you're telling me that the Fed's going to do four years out today. I think that's bullshit. I yeah. think that is bullshit. But it's Goldman Sachs, right? And and wealthy people go to Goldman Sachs because of their insight. Great. If you're buying stocks today because Goldman says rates going to stay zero for four years, good luck. I think and it's dumb. Right. Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, one of the things I always look at is anytime somebody tells me to buy something, I always say, well, do you have something to sell me? You know, and if they're telling me I should sell something, I'm wondering, are they looking to buy something? Right. And so that's why, yeah, same thing. I kind of take this with a grain of salt uh, for I, me. I, I, listen, I think you have to take it with a grain of salt because I think that defines who you are as an investor. And it defines, you know, how much you understand. If you're going to be led around by the nose and you're going to make your decisions because I tell you, you have to buy it now, you have to sell it now. Okay. 
that's not the kind of investor I am. I do my own homework. I look at my charts. I stay, I stay on top of it. There are names. Look, we may get a pullback in the market. I own Apple. Guess what? I'm never selling my fucking Apple. <laughs> I'll never sell. I'm just not going to sell it. And if the stock breaks down, it's down 30%. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy more. I'm not selling Apple. I'm not. I'm not selling my JP Morgan. I'm not. Right? Um, I own Microsoft. I'm not necessarily sure that I wouldn't sell some of my Microsoft if it made sense, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just because the market, if the market, if, if Georgia, if the Democrats win tonight, the market's down, you know, big tomorrow and the next day, the next day, I'm not bailing out of stocks that I own because guess what? They're all fundamentally solid names. Microsoft, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Apple. Is there anything wrong with those fucking names at all? There's nothing wrong with the names. And so, and so here's the deal. When, when Bloomingdale's has a sale and, and suits are 40% off, do you go to your closet and take all your clothes and run into Bloomingdale's and say, sell my clothes, sell my clothes? No, you go in there with your credit card and you buy three more suits because they're 40% cheaper today than they were yesterday. And guess what? The suit still fits and it looks good. So fundamentally, the story is strong. If you went in there and bought the suit down 40% and you put it on and the, and the arm fell off, I'd say, okay, you made a mistake. But if Apple's down, if, if the market gets crushed and Apple, which is a big growth name and it's outperformed, is absolutely going to be one of the names that gets crushed, guess what? I'm going to use that as a fucking buying opportunity because I'm not selling my Apple. And I'm not selling my JP Morgan. There are some names in there that I have in there to play. And, and those ones I may sell or, you know, I, 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 it depends, right? If I, if I don't sell them and the market crashes, I'm certainly not going to sell them at the lows unless the story has fundamentally changed. If suddenly you tell me that the, that, that the, that the fundamental story uh, that all of a sudden there's accounting mishaps and all of a sudden the story's changed, like, listen, I owned uh, Nikola, right? That uh, Nikola, that electric car company, right? The truck company, yes. right? I thought the story was fucking great. I get sucked right into it. But guess what? Uh, in fact, I made money on some of my position because the stock ran up. I sold half my position. So I, so I cashed out. I had the other half of the position and I let it ride. And then that day that that news came out about, you know, fucking it's all a joke and the stock collapsed. I did end up selling it at the bottom. I just said, oh, fuck it. I don't want to hold it anymore. And I sold it. So on that piece, I lost money. But overall, I still made money on the stock because of the stock I had sold on the way up. You understand? But nickel is not a stock that I was ever going to hold for the rest of my life. Apple, I'm not selling. <laughs> I'm not That's selling my Apple. And I'm not selling my JP Morgan. I'm just not. Right? I, I think it's great. I think one of the things that, that uh, people get, I think, mixed up on the, cons on the uh, analysts is, is the media always reports the analyst consensus. They call yeah. it the analyst consensus. where. Right. I don't. I think that's the stupidest word they could possibly use because the, the analysts don't come together and say, "Oh, this is what we agree on." They all put out their own report, and then the media averages the, it. The, the so industry it's makes it. an average, the, the, not the, the consensus. That's right. That, well, the industry makes an average, and they, and they call it the consensus, right? Because they take the twelve different analyst expectations, and you're right. They add them up and average it, and they come out with a consensus number. I agree with you. It's really an average. It's not a consensus, but. That's the terminology they use, so that's what they use. But yeah, no, I agree with you. But some of those analysts might have done 
better research. Some of them might have a better track record than others. And so over time, you'll understand, you know what? I like this guy, Polkari. He does great work. His, his numbers are always in line. This guy, Brian's an idiot. He misses every time. So, you know, I'm going to follow what Kenny says more than I'm going to follow what Brian says. And so, right. But in the end, um, you have to make that decision on your own, right? As an investor, you have to you have to sift through the noise and see, okay, who's really making sense and who's doing the work and the analysis that's actually proving to be mostly true or mostly on target, right? Yeah. So, Kitty, I, better, I, better I, win, better percentage. Brian, Brian, what's your Brian? Take? I wasn't picking on you, just so you oh, know. It could I, be a I different appreciate Brian. it. Yeah, yeah it could be course, a different Brian. Course. No, I think I agree with a lot of your points, and I have a lot of core positions that I, you know, very unlikely to sell. But I, I guess I view it. Maybe here's a sports analogy. You know, I have analysts that say, you know, the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl, right? And I'm a Chiefs fan. You know, I'm going to be on the Chiefs bandwagon for a while right now. But um, there's a lot of different analysts, and they have a different takes on football teams. But I guess I enjoy hearing what people have to say, and I think it's interesting. And there's an entertainment value there as well. And then I like, to, and, I, and you know, and I'm and I'm willing to like, you know, maybe. One of these days, you know, I don't know, the, the Dolphins will turn things around and it'll be a good team. And maybe I'd put some weight in there, you know, but uh, a thousand percent. You're absolutely right. There is. And part of it is entertainment value. And part of it is just listening to what people have to say. And you and you start to really sift through <clears throat> because there are some people that make more sense. There are some people that, you know, analyze the data differently and they, the way they present it is different. Um, and so there are certainly some people that that you'll pay attention to over others. Right. And you know, as, as a trader, I always like to also make sure I'm challenging my position. Where am I wrong? What did I miss? Ask myself those things. So. Well, it, okay. But you see now the difference is because are you day trading? Michael's you, day trading. You're in and out. Yes, yes. Out. Strictly yes. day trader cash by noon. Right. So you, okay. So you would do that more. I don't do that because that's not how I, tra- I don't day trade, right? I buy something and I buy it to hold it. If I buy something, I'm buying it with at the very minimum, at the very minimum you know, a six month or a 12 month time frame. I'm not buying it at eight o'clock in the, with nine, 10 o'clock in the morning to sell it at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not, right? <clears throat> and so therefore I don't, I don't invest like that. So I'm not a trader. I would refer to myself, I'm much more of a long-term investor. That's why I'm saying, you know, I'm dying. I'm the other on Monday when the Dow was down 700. I'm actually sitting at my desk going, oh, some more, some more, some more, because I wanted them to shake the trees. I want all the weaklings to fall out of the trees because then the shit hits the fan and all of a sudden, you know, the market's down a thousand points. I'm going, oh my god, that's the greatest day of my life. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I could qualify that by saying it's the greatest day of my life as long as as long as like, it's not the great financial crisis, right? <laughs> or, or the president hasn't got shot. But even if the president gets shot and the market collapses a thousand points, that event will not price stocks. The stocks will rally right back. Yeah, okay. It, it'll come under pressure that day, maybe a couple of days after, but, but that event will not price stocks in the long term. Like yeah, this political chaos in Georgia. The day after this, the president's shot. Yeah, this political chaos in Georgia, is it, it, it's going to create... It's going to create chaos tomorrow, maybe for a couple of days. And then the, and then you have to, okay, that's over now. And now the focus will turn back to the macro data, the fundamentals. Earnings are going to start next week. So people are going to start to pay attention to the micro stuff, right? They're going to start to pay attention to every little fart that comes out about JP Morgan or, or, or Boeing or telephone, 
right? Especially now that earnings season, because everyone's going to have a comment about the earnings and everyone's going to have a comment about their margins and everyone's going to have a comment. This is what I love. This is what I really love. Apple comes out every quarter, you know, last quarter, they made $190 billion and they sell the stock off because the expectation was $192 billion. <laughs> I, I sit there and I go, are you kidding me? It's like stupid. But you see, a day trader, a day trader loves that because if the stock sells off 2%, there's an opportunity for him to jump in and jump out. For me, it's ridiculous, right? Now, if, if they were supposed to come with 192 billion and they made 1 million, okay, there's a problem. That's a whole different story. Yeah. But, you know, to say, oh, the analysts thought they were going to make 192 and they only came in at 190 billion with a B. Oh, and the stock is selling off and everyone's so disappointed. Disappointed? In four and three fucking months, they just made $190 billion and you're fucking disappointed? Like, it doesn't they, make sense to me. Yeah, no, I, saw, I saw headlines over the weekend where they said Tesla, Tesla missed delivery expectations. They only delivered $499,500 out of the $500,000 they projected. I'm like, really? We're talking half a percent here and that's right. a miss? Yeah. Right. Right. And so what they listen, part of the job of the media as well is to, you know, kind of stir it up. Right. Sensationalism. Um, yeah. And, and so you have to you have to be able and listen, it happens all day long on Twitter. It happens on Facebook. It's, you know, everyone chimes in. So you have to learn to eliminate the noise and you and you have to become disciplined. You you have a discipline and you stick by your discipline and you eliminate the noise. That's it. If you buy something and it goes up 20 percent and that's your target, then you sell it. And, and, if, and if you want to be a little bit of a pig, sell half the position and put some money in the bank and let the other half ride if that's what you want to do. But if your discipline says, I'm going to buy it, if it's up 20%, I'm out. Well, then when it's up 20%, you should be out because that's what your discipline tells you, right? You can't go changing your discipline just based on, uh, today, I don't feel like paying attention. If that's your discipline, that's your discipline, period, wow. the end. I agreed a hundred percent. Yep. I think, uh, you know, I've, I've read like the book market wizards and it was just fascinating how many different ways there was to make money, but the similarities where they all stuck to, they all developed a discipline. They stuck to it. Some were yeah. short-term, some were long-term, some long bias, short bias, whatever it was. But as long as they stuck to their discipline, they managed to find that success. Yeah. And, and you will over the long term, you will find that success if you stick to the discipline, right? Well, Kenny, I think we're coming up on time here. So I just want to say we really appreciate having you on today and giving your insight and the stories. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, I know, but you know what? I should really be careful because I really throw the F-bomb around. I probably shouldn't do that. But what <laughs> happens is I end up getting, I just end up getting excited. And you know what I mean? So I hope I don't offend any of your listeners. I, yeah. I don't think you will. You're not, you're not the first one to, uh, to use colorful language here. I'm trying yeah. to just make, you know, I think me and Brian try to be good examples for the young, uh, for the young daughters we have covered up here. So well, one, yeah. thing, one thing if somebody says it, but you know, as long as daddy doesn't act on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But listen, you guys, uh, yeah, I I'm happy to do this again. If you think you want me again, I'd love uh, to have you back on. We'd love to talk to you again. Can you but, give us though? Or you should, you should probably wait until you get some feedback from people that listen to it. You may change your mind. We will. Uh, oh, I did want to note one thing. So we are recording this on January 5th, the night of the Georgia runoff. So Mark, or the, the polls close in about 45 minutes. So at this point, we don't have the results. We should have, they're going to be long, long digested by the time this is released next week. But Kenny, is there, if people wanted to get a hold of you somehow, do you have a good way for people to reach out? 
yeah, if you, I got a couple of ways. You can, uh, you can get my contact information if you text the word invest to 21,000 on your phone. So, so in the address, put in the number 21,000 and then in the message box, type the word invest and you'll get my digital business card. And on that, you'll have my phone number, my email, all that stuff. It'll take it to my website. You can get me on Twitter at Kenny Polkari. It's just on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. If you look me up, you'll get me there. Uh, and if you go to my website, which is, um, you can go to kennypolkari.com is my personal website, which will also get you to me as well. And it, my, my corporate is casecapitaladvisors.com. Right. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. Don't worry about writing it down. Just check out the show notes. We'll have all that information in there. Yeah. Um, Brian, did you have anything else? Kenny, did you want to leave us with any notes or anything you didn't, no, uh, no, didn't I talk just, about? I just want to make sure, Brian, you're not shocked. Did I shock you tonight? I apologize. Uh, just a little bit of shock. But it was great. All around <laughs> great. Really loved it. Um, and I guess on that note, um, this has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Thanks for joining us.